Welcome to One Chapel. We're a family of neighborhood churches in the Austin area. Our vision is to help people move from where they are to where God wants them to be. It's a place to connect, grow, and serve the communities where we live. You can learn more about One Chapel and how to get involved at onechapel.com. And now, here's this week's message. I, uh, I've always loved superheroes. Like from the time that I can remember, it, my earliest memories, I remember being a fan of superheroes, comic books and cartoons. And uh, I, the, my first recollection is seeing Spider-Man on a show, and this is going to date me a little bit, but on a show called The Electric Company. And some of you, you dated yourselves. The Electric Company, it was this educational show, so all that was pretty lame. But sometimes they had Spider-Man. And I loved watching the Spider-Man little segments they would have on there. And so I just I fell in love with the idea, you know. Um, I loved Spider-Man, and I loved Batman, and Wonder Woman was pretty cool for a girl. And uh, Aquaman, he's weird. I don't understand him at all. That's strange. But Superman, Superman is an incredible superhero. And I loved them so much that actually I decided that I was going to dress as Superman for a costume party that I was going to. I was probably about first grade. And I wanted to be Superman to go to this Halloween costume party at somebody's house. Now, don't email me. It was probably a harvest party. I'm sure it was fine. So, um, <laughs> so email my parents. Um, so I, so I, I'm like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go. And I knew that there was a contest. And so I'm like, I'm going to win this contest. I am going to crush every other person because I'm going to go as Superman. Now, one of the things you have to understand about the time frame that I'm growing up in, and, you know, born in 75 and so late 70s and into the early 80s, there was a pretty incredible thing if you wanted to dress as Superman, and it was this. They were called underoos. And it was underwear that's fun to wear. And it was. And so I had this very set. And so I got dressed that night. And I put on my Superman t-shirt, and I put on my blue jeans, because I noticed that Superman had tights on. And then I took those briefs right there, and I put them on top of my jeans. Right up here, I just strapped them on, and I was ready to go. I took my mom's red towel, and I put it around my neck, and I fastened it with a clothespin, and I was ready to go to the party. Well, I flew off to the party in my parents' station wagon and showed up. You could picture the scene because it was down in somebody's basement. There's like shag carpet and like wood paneling around the walls. And so all the kids are there and all their, all their stuff, all their costumes. And I'm walking around checking out the competition. <laughs> I'm going to kill that guy. Uh, she doesn't stand a chance because I got my underoos on. So the time comes to judge the competition. And the, they line all the kids up down there in that basement, and they kind of walk by, you know, making notes of every person as they go by. And they look at me and go, hmm, and walk off. And I'm like, oh, that was it. That was it. First place, there's no doubt in my mind. Well, time comes to announce the winners. And so they announce, first place goes to Mary. <laughs> A girl named Mary. And Mary showed up that night dressed as a Native American. I don't want to say it was political, but I'm not sure. I'm not saying it wasn't. And so she was, that did not land. Uh, she, she won the competition, and I was gutted. I was devastated. And actually, I remember, I, I fully remember walking off to the wood paneling wall and standing there off to the side, and I cried in my underwear. <laughs> I cried 
in my underwear. And I was devastated. And I remember, because I was only about first grade, it was the first experience that I'd ever really had with a real disappointment. Today we're starting a series called What Went Wrong? We're going to talk a little bit about disappointment. And that's a question I think that all of us have asked at one time or another. So what went wrong here? And actually it's probably a question that some of you are asking right now, right here in this room. And it's because I think we all have dreams. We all have things that we aspire to. We have things that we want to see happen in our lives. Every one of us, we've got something that we're dreaming about and hoping for. And beyond that, I think we actually have things that are more like God-sized dreams, like stuff that he puts inside of us, stuff that we, we would say, I'm actually called to do this thing. So one of the main reasons that we ask the question, what went wrong is, well, it's because life. Like life just throws curveballs at us. Unexpected circumstances, they creep up and it creates a gap between our expectations and our experiences. In other words, what I'm experiencing in my life right now, it doesn't quite line up with what I expected was going to happen. There's a gap between those two things. And that gap is what we would all call disappointment. So if you Google disappointment, you're going to get Webster's Dictionary definition. And here's what they have to say. It's the act or an instance of disappointing, the state or emotion of being disappointed. Don't you hate it when they use the word to define the word that you're trying to define? It's like, come on, work a little harder. It's a lot Webster's, really helpful. But if you dig a little deeper down on disappointment, you're going to realize that really, I think we experience disappointment on two different layers. And the first layer is kind of a surface layer, meaning it just, you get disappointed, but you can just dismiss it pretty easily. So things like, um, I don't know, maybe, well, not winning a competition because of your underpants. That was disappointing, but I got over it pretty quickly. The barista misspells your name very weirdly, and you feel like, oh, come on, she didn't really pay attention to me. Or you order guac on the side, and they don't bring it to the table. Well, now we're talking about deeper disappointment, no doubt about it. But, but the first layer, we can kind of get through okay, but the second layer, it goes much, much deeper. It's that disappointment that kind of settles in, and it stays with you. So if you dig down on it, you're going to find that disappointed actually means you're defeated. You were defeated in your expectation or your hope. Your hope got defeated. Your expectation got defeated. So disappointing means this was failing to meet my expectations. So serious disappointment that we experience is really more of a defeat. It's a form of defeat where we want or need something, and so we reach out for it, but we get thwarted. We're defeated in our efforts. We're defeated in our hopes, and it hurts. And sometimes it hurts a lot. But what really hurts is when we get defeated over and over and over again. Some of you know what that's like. The more we experience that kind of disappointment, the more it starts to become part of who we are until we develop a lifestyle of being defeated like a lifestyle of associating hope with hurt. So I'm not going to hope anymore. I'm going to crush all of that because every time I try, I get defeated and I'm disappointed. Proverbs 13 verse 12 talks about this. It says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. My hope, when it keeps getting deferred, my hope keeps getting put off, makes us sick in our hearts. And that means something to some of you in the room today. So chances are you've experienced it or you're experiencing it right now. And disappointments, whether you call it disappointment or not, they're there in your life. 
And so all we're left with when this happens is, well, what went wrong? What went wrong with my life? And so as we walk through this series, I want to try to to give some language to the feelings that are affecting us when this happens and probably affecting us more than we realize or more than we're willing to say. So disappointment is that feeling that things should be better than they are, that people in my life, they should be better than they are, that circumstances, this, this should be better than it really is, that my finances should be better than they really are. Can I get a somebody? That my relationships, they should be better than this. My life should be better. I expected more. It's not. And by the way, you're not the only person that has experienced stuff like this. Because if you read through the scriptures, you'll find over and over and over again that people through the scriptures experience severe disappointment. And King David is actually a great example of this. Somebody who experienced a whole bunch of disappointment, but also an example of how those disappointments can ultimately affect our lives in unexpected ways. I want to talk about that today. So check out David's introduction. The prophet Samuel, he travels to go anoint the next king of Israel. And so he asks for all the boys to be lined up and he's going down the line of David and his brothers. And here's where we are in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see the things the way that you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord, he looks at the heart. And then Samuel asked, are these all the sons you have? Oh, they're still the youngest, said Jesse, but he's out in the fields and he's watching the sheep and goats. Well, send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him and he was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. I just love that description so much that's in there. He was beautiful eyes. I just think it's fantastic. And the Lord said, that's the one, anoint him. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of oil he had brought. He anointed David with the oil and the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. Now of all the men in Israel, God looks at David's heart and he says, that's the one. That's gonna be the next king. So what a day. Like how incredible that day must have been for David. He's absolutely thrilled. I mean, can't you just see him? He's like, yo, What's up? Like, he's the youngest. I'm the youngest of six in my family, so I get this. It's like, oh, 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 you didn't get picked? Oh, sorry about that. Oh, you're the oldest brother? Oh, you get everything? Oh, sorry about that. I'm the next king. What's up, bro? Like, that's, that's probably how I would have handled it, which is why I was not anointed as that. But, but you can kind of see it, man. It's amazing. David's thinking, this is it. God's got plans for my life and I'm going to have power and I'm going to have influence and I'm going to have riches and I'm going to have authority. I'm going to have great success. Man, it's happening. All my dreams are coming true. But it would be 15 years before any of that happened. 15 years from the time he's anointed king to the time he becomes the king. Talk about a delay in your dream. Talk about disappointment. We wouldn't stand for it because we, we get heartbroken when things don't happen in the next month. Well, I got a dream and it didn't happen next week. So where are you? It's because we live in this instant society where we want everything and by and large, we get everything now. And it applies often to our dreams. You don't believe me that you feel like that? Well, what was the last time that you remember where Wi-Fi wasn't strong and your page didn't load fast? Instagram's not showing up. What is wrong with this country? You know what I mean? Like, why? Uh-huh. Because you know that feeling. It's like Amazon Prime. 
Amazon Prime, you're shopping on Amazon and you're like, wait a minute, this doesn't have same day delivery? Oh my gosh, like, is it that hard to find a pillow? This is ridiculous. And you're angry. Talked about this last week, but you're sitting at a green light. Green light turns and they don't go, like they don't hedge their bets and go a little bit before it turns green. You're like, get out of the way. Yeah, you don't want to laugh too hard because you're like, no, I did that on the way to church. Have you ever been to a fast food restaurant with your friends and they don't serve it right away? You're sitting there. And I know we came to a medium food restaurant. I thought this was a fast food restaurant. That's a, that's a dad. I think that's a dad joke right there. But I just, can you imagine that? We can't imagine holding on to a dream for 15 years. Wouldn't you be disappointed? And for the first seven of those years, David is living in King Saul's palace. 1 Samuel 18, 1, after David finished talking with Saul, he met Jonathan, the king's son. There was an immediate bond between them, for Jonathan loved David. And from that day on, Saul kept David with him and wouldn't let him return home. So put yourself again in David's shoes. You've been told that King Saul has lost the favor of God and he will not be the king anymore. And in a private ceremony at your house, as a teenager, you were anointed by the prophet to be the king. And now you're living in the palace of the guy that you're supposed to replace. And he won't let you go home to your family. There's a word we have for this. I think it's called uh, uh, abduction. And he's holding on to him. You're stuck and alone. And it gets worse because Saul is narcissistic and he's hostile and he's abusive. So after David killed Goliath and these battles and there's women, he's coming home. Women are singing his praises and they're saying, Saul has slain his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. And in 1 Samuel 18, it says, this made Saul very angry. What's this, he said? They credit David with 10,000s and me with only thousands? Well, next they'll be making him their king. So from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. And the very next day, a tormenting spirit from God overwhelmed Saul, and he began to rave in his house like a madman. David was playing the harp as he did each day with his beautiful eyes. <laughs> but I apologize for what just happened. But Saul... But Saul had a spear in his hand, and he suddenly hurled it at David, intending to pin him to the wall. But David escaped him twice. So this is happening to David. Think about living in that environment. This guy's trying to kill you. He's trying to pin you against the wall. And the sad and actually really difficult reality is that for some of you, you don't have to imagine it because you've lived similar circumstances. I'm so sorry. You've lived through physical abuse. You've lived through verbal emotional, sexual abuse. You understand what David is going through, even spiritual abuse from a church maybe that you've gone to. And for seven years, David is living with this. And finally, it gets so bad, David has to run for his life. You read that in 1 Samuel 19. And for four years, David is running all over Israel, hiding, trying to survive, and just wondering, is tonight the night that I'm going to be killed? And finally, with nowhere to call home, always wondering if this will be his last moment, finally, after four years, David and his men, they find a place of refuge and safety in Philistine territory, the old enemies. But no sooner had they settled down there in 1 Samuel chapter 30 that the Amalekites raid and burn their city to the ground while they're out. And they take all of the women and all of the children and all of their possessions. And David's men, they come back and everything's gone. Everything's on fire. And all of David's men are ready to stone him. 
I just want you to lock that story in. Get that in your mind and keep that because we're going to come back to that scene in just a moment. But I just want you to see the mounting disappointment in this guy's life, the confusion of being anointed king. And oh, wait, but, but not yet. It's going to take 15 years. Being forced to stay in the king's palace as a teenager and you don't get to go home. And living with this monstrosity of a king who wants you dead and abuses you, which leads you to run for your life for four years, being chased by the king and his army. And when you finally find refuge, you feel safe with your old enemies. You find that that, uh, another army came and took everything that you owned and burned your city to the ground. And by the way, you're supposed to be the king all this time. Now, eventually, David starts having some good things happen in his life. Because life is like that, right? It's not all bad all the time. Like, good things do happen to us. And so, we do experience some good things. So, King Saul, he dies. David doesn't have to run anymore. David's officially inaugurated. He's recognized as the next king of Israel. He brings the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. Israel gets expanded during his entire reign. And David becomes the most honored king ever in Israel's history. A lot of great things happening for David. But the nature of disappointment and hurt and abuse and rejection is that you can actually cover them up with the good things that start to happen in your life. But eventually, if you cover them up, they're all going to start leaking out. If you don't deal with them, if you just say, well, it's not so bad anymore, so I'm just going to cover it up, eventually it leaks out. So you can cover up disappointment, but it will eventually leak out. Even as I say that, some of you are like, oh boy. Even though great things are now happening later in David's life, look what he so easily fell into in 2 Samuel 11. In the spring of the year when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. In other words, the king didn't go to the war that the kings are supposed to go to. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. And late one afternoon after his midday rest, he's really being responsible, It was midday rest. David, he got up out of bed midday and was walking around on the roof of the palace. He looked over the city. He noticed a woman with his beautiful eyes and she had unusual beauty and she was taking a bath. And he sent someone to find out who she was and he was told, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And then David sent messengers to get her and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. Like this is the same guy. This is the same guy who had an uncommonly close relationship with God. This is the same guy who God chose above all men to be the king over Israel. This is the guy who had an amazing faith in God, who killed Goliath, taking five stones and a sling, but only used one stone. This is the guy who understood godly authority, so much so that he didn't kill King Saul, even though he could have been justified in doing it. This is the guy who danced before the Lord in complete abandonment, wearing the ephod, essentially wearing tidy whities It's the second underwear thing today. I apologize for that. My wife's going to talk to me later. This is that guy. And when a pleasurable opportunity presents itself to him, David doesn't hesitate. He jumps right in. Why? Well, because sex makes you feel good, at least for a moment. Because alcohol makes you feel good, at least for a moment. Because shopping makes you feel good at least for a moment. Gambling makes you feel good. Drug abuse makes you feel good. Gossip makes you feel good for a moment. 
So when we have serious disappointment and something inside is just not quite right, what do we most commonly do? We reach out trying to find something, trying to find anything that will just make us feel good, even if it lasts only for a moment. And I think this is what was going on with David. David had experienced so much trauma, so much disappointment in his life that it was all just lying there. It was all under the surface, never dealt with. And it ended up taking him farther than he ever planned on going. Some of you know that kind of disappointment. When I was um, in my mid-20s, almost 30, I, I was a youth pastor at a church in Colorado. Most of you know that story. You've heard me talk about the scandal that took place with the pastor of that church. And one year later, we had a shooting there. Most of you know that story. But very difficult circumstances. But what you may not realize about me is from a very young age, I had believed that God had called me to minister to students, to teenagers, and that I would dedicate my life to doing so. And so I got my dream job at this church in Colorado. And we had an amazing season of growth and expansion. And every week we would have about 1,200 to 1,400 teenagers showing up and being a part of our ministry. And it was a blast. And we were having so much fun and discipling. And, but the scandal happened and the shooting happened. And then as a result of that, of course, parents go, I'm not sure I want you to go to that church anymore. They're teenagers. And so that group that I was leading, it started to decline. Did pretty good for a while, but then 100 kids dropped off, 200 kids dropped off, 300 kids dropped off, and we just kept going down. And of course, that was happening to the rest of the church. And the thing was, there was nothing I could do about it. It was all out of my control. Like, I didn't do any of those things. I wasn't responsible for any of those things that happened, but I was so disappointed because this is my dream, and I'm failing at it, and I can't fix it. I can remember one afternoon being on the floor in our bedroom and, in, and just crying in tears. And my wife's saying, Brent, it's going to be okay. Like it's, it's not that big a deal. There's nothing you can do. But I couldn't shake it. I couldn't get past the disappointment. And in tears, I remember saying, but I'm just failing. I'm a failure. I can't fix it. I can't save those kids. I can't rescue the situation. I can't turn this around. I don't have the leadership capacity or ability. I can't do this. I remember driving to work, pulling up to the doors in my car and just sitting there for 15 minutes, half hour. I don't want to go in there. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm a failure. I can't. I was heartbroken, severely disappointed. When you experience stuff like that and you've been hurt and you've been abused and you've been rejected and misused, violated, horrible things have been said about you or to you, life threw you a curveball and it, things didn't turn out the way you thought they should. So a loved one dies unexpectedly. You're diagnosed with a disease. or Your spouse asks you for a divorce. and You lose your job. You get turned down for that promotion that you desperately wanted. Disappointments come one after another, and you have that increasing gap between your expectations and your experiences. When all that stuff happens, deep trauma occurs in your soul. And if you leave it untouched, trauma can remain there dormant and it can stay there for months. And it can stay there actually for years or even for decades. But eventually, I'm just telling you, it'll start to leak out. And you'll see it and it might leak out in your marriage and the way that you respond to your spouse harshly. You respond in harshness to your children and blow up at them. You respond to your friends in inappropriate ways. You respond to your coworkers and it's leaking out of you and it leaks out in all sorts of addictive behavior. Have you ever had like an infected splinter in your finger? You know, like a, like a big old, like just, just lodged in there like that? 
this is the worst, and it, and it hurts, and you just, you, you've tried, and you just can't get it out, you just leave it there, but then it gets kind of infected, and so you're walking around, kind of living life, and then somebody bumps it, you just, just barely bump it, like, <laughs> come on, man, did you not see what's in my finger, no, I didn't see it at all, and you have a disproportionate reaction to the little injury that you sustained. Somebody just bumps up against you in your life. <gasps> and you are all over them. We get splinters in our lives, in our souls. They get infected. So has anybody ever said to you, hey man, you are overreacting. I don't mean in the jerky way. Like people sometimes are just jerks. You're overreacting. I don't mean that. Somebody just says, hey, you're overreacting or... I think you might be blowing this way out of proportion. Why are you so upset about this thing? Chances are they might be right because you've got an infection. When you have past wounds, past disappointments, they, they get infected in your soul and somebody bumps into them somehow and you will have a disproportionate response. How dare you? I said you look nice today. What? <laughs> you know because you've done it before. There's like infected splinters in your soul. And so you start to realize you're in the middle of that. Or when people come to my office and they want to talk to me about disappointment or, or you go to see a counselor, that oftentimes what people will say is, I don't like how I'm feeling. I don't like this. I just, I just want to feel normal again. What do I need to do? Tell me what to do to feel better. And most of us respond that way to surface trauma in our lives. We just want to feel better. If you just tell me what to, I'll just do, I'll go do that. But this is important. Counselors will say that's actually not the best question to ask. In fact, that's a question that can possibly get you stuck. The better and more healing questions are, what does God think about me? What does God think about me in this state, in what I'm going through, in the disappointment that I'm suffering right now? What does God think about me? What does God think about that traumatic situation that's affecting me right now? Or where was God in the midst of that traumatic experience that I had? Where was he? And by the way, I think he can handle all of that. The problem is we don't turn in and turn to him and say, where were you? Or even sometimes, where were you? Why weren't you there? I think he can handle that. And I think he prefers for you to turn into him because what most of us do is, where were you? Forget it. And we turn and walk away from the only one that can help us. So one of the ways that God brings healing to our lives is for us to become aware of the presence of Jesus in a hurtful memory. Because listen, Jesus is always with you whether you feel him or not. And so I think that finding Jesus in the middle of your pain, it is the key to your healing. Asking these questions, locating him, finding out where he was can be the key to you finding the healing you're looking for. So when David was confronted with the reality of how far his trauma had taken him, his response in Psalm 51 is incredible. Hide my sins from your face. Erase all my guilt by your saving grace. Create in me a clean heart, a new clean heart within me. Fill me with pure thoughts and holy desires ready to please you. May you never reject me. May you never take from me your sacred spirit. Let my passion for life be restored, tasting joy in every breakthrough you bring to me. As you drop down, he says, you will not despise my tenderness as I humbly bow down at your feet because you favor Zion. Do what is good for her. Be the protecting wall around Jerusalem. And here it is, when we are fully restored. 
you will rejoice and take delight in every offering of our lives as we bring our sacrifices of righteousness before you in love. And when we are fully restored. David actually talks about the reality of your soul being healed. Your soul getting restored. In Psalm 23, verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He does what? Restores my soul. This is the work that God does. And this is the work that God wants to do in you. He wants to restore your soul. In fact, everybody, he's intent on doing it. The, most of you know, of course, this year is 2020. And Pastor Russ Walker at our Lake Travis campus, he always does a little research on the Hebrew meaning of the number of the year that we're in. And so 20 is very interesting because 20, the number 20 in Hebrew has this visual picture of open hands. It looks like open hands. And 20 has the meaning of expectancy and redemption. It has the meaning of to restore all in 2020. So we've been thinking about and praying about this year in 2020, what God might want to do in and through our lives as a church and as individuals, and how this year can be different from 2019. And that word that we're praying about is that word, redemption. God, would you redeem what's gone on in our lives? And redemption means the act of restoring the honor, worth, or reputation of. It means fulfillment. So I want to go back to 1 Samuel 30, where they've lost everything, where they're all weeping, where their families are gone, their cities burned to the ground, because the end of the story describes what I believe God wants to do in your life this year. So they're weeping in 1 Samuel 30, verse 6. David was now in great danger because all his men were very bitter about losing their sons and daughters, and they began to talk of stoning him. But David found strength in the Lord his God. Then he said to Abiathar the priest, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought it. And then David asked the Lord, should I chase after this band of raiders? Will I catch them? And the Lord told him, yes, go after them. Here it is from God's mouth. You will surely recover everything that was taken from you. So David and his 600 men set out and they came to the brook Bezor, but 200 of the men were too exhausted to cross the brook. So David continued the pursuit with 400 men. David found strength in the Lord his God. There's lots of other places that we can go to find strength. And we don't know the time frame here, but isn't it possible that David might have even looked in other places? That David looked for other things, circumstances, other stuff to fill his life with, but realized as he did so that it wouldn't give him actual strength that would last. In fact, all that it would bring him would be further disappointment. It would fall short. So he found strength in the Lord his God. It was the only place. And I love how it says, some were too exhausted. Like, I think that happens to us sometimes. You know, every single one of it happens where, where I can't go on anymore. I've been too disappointed. I've lost too much. I can't go on anymore. Don't ask me to go on anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. And so we just say, you guys go on. I'm too exhausted to fight. And this is why it's so important to be in a family of believers who can come alongside you because here's what happens to them. 
Verse 16, so, let, so he led David to them and they found the Amalekites spread out across the fields, eating and drinking and dancing with joy because of the vast amount of plunder they had taken from the Philistines and the land of Judah. David and his men, they rushed in among them and they slaughtered them throughout that night and the entire next day until evening. And none of the Amalekites escaped except 400 young men who fled on camels. And David got back everything the Amalekites had taken. And he rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, small or great, son or daughter, nor anything else that had been taken. David brought everything back. He also recovered all, everybody say all, all the flocks and herds. And his men drove them ahead to the other livestock. This plunder belongs to David, they said. Then David returned to the brook Bezor and met up with the 200 guys who'd been left behind because they were too exhausted to go. And they went out to meet David and his men, and David greeted them joyfully. But some evil troublemakers, those jerks, some evil troublemakers among David's men said, they didn't go with us. They can't have any of the plunder that we recovered. Give them their wives and kids and tell them to be gone. But David said, no, 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 my brothers. Don't be selfish with what the Lord has given us. He has kept us safe and helped us defeat the band of raiders that attacked us. Who will listen when you talk like this? We share and share alike. Those who go to battle and those who guard the equipment. And from then on, David made this a decree and regulation for Israel. And it's still followed today. David brought everything back. He recovered all of it. And that is what God wants to do in your life. But would you notice, please, that it wasn't just David and it wasn't just the guys that went. It was also the ones who were too exhausted to continue to fight. They also got everything back. Because they were a part of the community, they got everything back too, even though they were exhausted and couldn't fight themselves. I think community members too weak to fight, they can get everything back too. That's why this is important. I don't feel like I can go on anymore. I don't feel like I can do this again. Well, we're going to link arms up with you, and we're going to move forward, and you're going to get it all back. Now, it may not look exactly like you think it should. That's up to him. But I believe that he can restore all. Why don't you close your eyes and bow your heads. You guys come on up. Thanks for joining us today. If God is doing something in your life or you're looking for ways to get connected, you can learn about groups, teams, and more at onechapel.com welcome. You can subscribe to future messages from One Chapel on your favorite podcast player. And of course, you're always invited to services every Sunday morning at 9 and 11. See you next time.